Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're picking up in point number one, where we've been for the last several programs in our current teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms, Important Prophecy Terms. And we have seven terms that we're going to look at, actually seven sets of terms that uh, I felt were necessary for us to have a, a good foundational understanding before we launched into our next teaching series, which is covering the, the 30 prophetic events uh, in the Bible, listed in the Bible, accounted in the Bible from now until eternity. So 30 prophetic events. But as I was preparing that, I, I realized that there were some key terms that if they weren't more properly understood by you, the listener, that you could be uh, misled, you could, be, uh, you could misunderstand, and that would be unfortunate because we want uh, to understand the Bible from its literal sense, and therefore we have to do a little bit of spade work, a little bit of groundwork to uncover some meanings of terms that on the surface in English may not be obvious. And one of the most important, I believe, sets of terms that needs to be understood, and when we do understand them, the Bible flows so much more easily, uh, particularly in terms of the prophetic word, that third of the Bible uh, that is prophecy, are the terms the Son of God and the Son of Man. And if you just think of it off the top of your head, you think, well, that's Jesus. He's the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. Well, that is very true. And we are going through uh, a detailed analysis, if you will, in point number one of the Son of God to show that that is true, but it is not the point that uh, I want to get across to you about the distinction. It's not a fleshly distinction that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, but it's a spiritual, um, uh, godly, if you will, trying to think of a term here, you have to understand what is meant by the term the Son of God. When you hear Son of God, it is an aspect, it is a um, part of Jesus uh, that means one thing in Bible prophecy, and the term Son of Man is applied to mean something else in a different setting. So I may not be making myself that clear, but I, I pray that as we go through these scriptures, you'll see this, and we'll try to sum the whole thing up as, uh, as we move from point one to point two, uh, some programs down the road here. But we have been making the point about why Jesus had to come and uh, how he was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be coming, and we spent time in Deuteronomy with the great prophecy uh, God gave uh, Moses that there would be someone like Moses. Remember, Moses was um, told by God to speak for God 
to the people, to speak on behalf of God to the people, because the people were fearful of hearing directly from God. That was their experience at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. So God did that. He started speaking through Moses. And then Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, I am going to speak through another person in the future who will be someone that I will send, and you are to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you will perish. And of course, we know that to be Jesus Christ. And then we went through some uh, extra effort to show that uh, the, the grace of God uh, showed us exactly the time um, way back in uh, you know five, six hundred years before Christ came, uh, God gave prophecies through the Holy Spirit to people like Daniel to tell us exactly the day that he would come so that the Jews would not miss him. And of course, then we went to, so we found that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 23, 24, and 25, or I believe it's 24, 25, and 26. And then uh, we went to Luke in chapter 19 to show the, uh, the realization of that. When Jesus actually came into Jerusalem, uh, the week that he was going to be crucified, what they call his Passion Week, and he actually... Um, spoke to the people after wailing. He was wailing as he came down the the side of the Mount of Olives to cross the Kidron Valley to go up to the temple because it was that realization that the people did not accept him for who he was. And he said, you could have known the day. You could have known the day, but now you've missed it. And, of course, we know from other scriptures that that generation was cursed for having Jesus come and show them the miracles and everything he did and then still denying him. Then we went into uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 17. And by the way, for those of you that may be listening for the first time, I am talking off of a worksheet that has been prepared uh, for these seven pairs of important prophetic terms. And you can go to the, the radio station, as the announcer has pointed out, and download this, and you can follow along so that you're not caught up in the the whirlwind of all these scriptures uh, that are uh, prepared to talk about these uh, these different prophetic terms. We went to Matthew 3 and Matthew 17 to show that when Jesus came, we saw almost exactly the same wording used by God that he did with Moses in Deuteronomy 18 to show that this is indeed the one that had been promised by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18. It says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We saw that at the beginning with John the Baptist uh, to separate, to make sure that the people understood that it was Jesus they should be uh, following and not John the Baptist. And then in Matthew 17, uh, at the towards the very end of Jesus' ministry, when uh, the realization had been made clear by the apostles, that Israel was not going to follow Jesus. They were not going to accept him as their Messiah, and therefore the promised kingdom that had been uh, covenanted and promised all through the Old Testament would not come to pass uh, in the first century, but would have to wait now 2,000 years until the church age has been removed. Uh, So we had Matthew 17 where he takes him up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and here the apostles were able to see Jesus transfigured before them to look like he will be in his glorified body when he comes back at his second coming, because that's what the Jews are looking for. 
That's what Israel is looking for is the second coming of Christ now, uh, the Messiah. But what he did is he placed Moses on one side and Elijah on the other to make sure that they understood that they should not, like their forefathers, be worshiping and and hanging on every word of Moses um, the way they had been. They were, in fact, they weren't really hanging directly on the word of Moses. In fact, Jesus, we find out in John, admonished them for ha- not hanging on the word as much as they should have, because he says in John chapter eight, if you had, and I apologize, John chapter five should be looking at my own worksheet. Uh, in John chapter five, Jesus admonishes them for saying, you know, Moses is the man we're following. He says, well, if you had followed Moses, you would have known me because Moses wrote about me. Well, they were missing those points. They were missing the point about Deuteronomy 18, where Moses had prophesied about Jesus. So uh, the point God is making is, not only am I sending the Messiah, but I want you, first century Israel, to whom I am sending my son, I want you to make sure you know this is my son and the people that you have been incorrectly um, giving your allegiance to, whether it's John the Baptist or it's Moses or Elijah from the Old Testament, don't do that. It's Jesus that you need to be focusing on. And then we went to 2 Peter, and Peter verified what he saw, and he said this makes the the scriptures of the Old Testament come alive much more so than ever before because we've seen it with our own eyes. And then Peter admonishes the church to believe as he believed. Then we moved into the, the, the fleshly, if you will, the human likeness of Jesus. And to understand that Jesus is, as we said over and over again, is the second member of the triune Godhead, tri being three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that God took on the form of a man to come to this earth to provide a sacrifice for humankind, for you and for me. There is no other God in any human construct, any religion in the world that does that. Just our God, Jehovah God, did that in the form of a man. And this is where, as we go through these next several verses, starting in Philippians 2, so if we could go ahead and go to Philippians 2 uh, in your Bible, that this is where people say, well, this is, you know, son of God, son of man. All that's merely saying is that he is God and he is man at the same time. And that's true. And we said that at the beginning of the program, as we've said several times. But that misses a key point of knowing the distinction because the terminology used by the writers of the Bible, the writers of the New Testament, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, used the Son of God in certain circumstances and used the Son of Man term in other circumstances. And if you understand why they did that, it really makes the Bible come alive uh, and, and much more easy to understand the flow of things and who's being spoken to about what. So, it's more than just the fleshly distinction that, yes, he's the son of God, he's the son of man. So we go to Philippians chapter 2, and this is where Paul is telling the church at Philippi about this fleshly aspect of uh, a Jesus. And I want to build on this for just a few minutes so that we understand the distinction here. We go to second, uh, or rather to Philippians chapter 2, and we want to start at verse 5. 
and go down to verse 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be demanded, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And we'll explore that likeness of men here in just a few moments. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you can see, one, that Jesus has, if you will, uh, visualize, Jesus has stepped out of heaven from the heavenly realm and has come to earth and is born of a virgin, Mary, not having any interaction with Joseph as the unbelievers would believe. And as, as a matter of fact, if you believe that Jesus was born of Mary and Joseph, then you see him as the son of a man. And hopefully you, you see that uh, clearly, that basically a person who sees Jesus as the son of a man is an unbeliever, somebody that thinks that God did not interact in this at all, and Jesus is just a really good guy, a good prophet that lived 2,000 years ago. And that's he's just a, a figure of history. That's the way people would see him, and therefore they would see him as the son of man. That's an important point to grasp as we build on that going forward here in point number one, that he humbled himself to become like a man, obedient to the point of death. And that's the point. So if you look at verses five, six, seven, and eight, it's telling us about Jesus stepping out of his godly position, his form of God, taking on the form of a man and being obedient to the point of death. And because he was obedient to the point of death, then 9, 10, and 11 apply. Because following his death, burial, and resurrection, it says that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And there will be a point in time when every knee in the future, that's prophecy, a point in time when every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Lord. And, of course, we know that that hasn't happened yet, so we know that that's yet future. So, But we see the whole, uh, the coming, the departure back to heaven, and the return to earth all here in 5 through 11, uh, because it's not until he comes back to the earth that every knee is going to bow. So we see this likeness of man so that he can come so that God can come down to the earth and more properly and fully identify with man and man identify with this personage because that's the experience all through the Old Testament with the the men the uh, the patriarchs and the prophets and so forth that God had sent to us uh, so now he sent him himself in the form of a man. So we have this fleshly aspect. And I wanted to build on this. I want you to look at um, 
verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I think that's important, and I want to explore that with you. And what we want to do is take this term, likeness of men, and let's go all the way back to Genesis, and let's go all the way back to Genesis 5. So very early in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, Adam is still hanging around, and we're going to be talking about his um, third son. So go to Genesis chapter 5, and I want you to look at verse number 3. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. Now, we've had Adam and Eve uh, in perfect, in a perfect state in the garden. We've had Adam and Eve fall through the sin of um, choosing through free will to defy God through the temptation of Satan and take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says, in, and so therefore they've had their sons, um, Cain and Abel, and Satan worked through Cain, the firstborn, um, thinking that he might be trouble for Satan, and that's something to explore it in great detail at a later point in time. That's how Satan has worked through history, is looking to cut off the bloodline from Adam because Jesus is in the bloodline of Adam. So Cain uh, kills Abel, Cain is banished out, and here's uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So you may, you may read right over verse 3 and think really nothing of it, so what I'd like you to do is turn... Uh, For me, it's back a page. I want to go to verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. Verse 1, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Genesis, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He made him in the likeness of God, but man fell. Man fell into sin, and the penalty of sin is death, and we are all under that penalty, and that's why uh, we have faith to lead us to Jesus Christ, to our Lord and Savior, so that those sins um, and and the ultimate penalty of sin being death can be removed, and our great hope is eternal life with Jesus and God the Father. So when you look at made in the likeness of God, and now fallen man, Adam in verse 3, is in his own likeness, in his image, no longer the image of God, no longer the likeness of God. So when you see that, it it adds, I think, a deeper perspective to what we're trying to understand here about Jesus when he came to this earth. He took on, he wasn't a, a, a... a God who came down here in a form, if you can imagine the Greek gods of mythology, that they weren't really human, they looked like human, but they were really God. No, Jesus came down, or God came down to this earth, took on the form of a man in the likeness of man, as we're told in Philippians chapter 2. And that's that's very significant to understand, so that so that man and Jesus could have a complete understanding of each other, that when they watched Jesus being tempted, 
they saw a man just like them in their likeness, in their fallen image, being tempted, yet never succumbing to sin. Okay, we're going to pick this up, and we're going to go to Romans uh, chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, in our next uh, program to carry on a little bit more about this fleshly likeness of Jesus before we actually move into an understanding of the use of the term, the Son of God. So again, in our next program. So now we're going to continue, as we always do in each of our programs, to turn to a question from a listener. And we have been going through a question from Rich in Indian Springs, and it is indeed, to borrow his name, a rich question because it has to do with the Holy Spirit and the manifestations, plural, of the Holy Spirit because he is manifests himself differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament church age, and then he will manifest himself again differently in the tribulation. And that's the question that Rich has, and it has to do with 2 Thessalonians 2. And he's asking about the, uh, or pointing out, I should say, and that's, that's why I really think this is a great question, because he's done some biblical research. He's pointing out that the restrainer of evil described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is, he believes, and I believe as well, is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is taken out of the way um, so that the Antichrist can be revealed and usher in the seven-year tribulation, his question is, how can the tribulation saints that are described in Revelation 20 verse 4 be saved if there's no Holy Spirit? So we're, we're going through and looking at uh, kind of expanding on this and looking at how God and the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, interacts with mankind from Genesis through Revelation, which includes the, the tribulation period, to see the, 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 the multitude of differences and the, and the different ways that God interacts through the triune Godhead individually and corporately. And we started out with the question, and we've been kind of working on that in Genesis. So if you would, uh, we were in Genesis chapter 5 in our um, teaching portion of the program today. So let's go back just a couple of pages to um, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and point out, you know, to help answer the question, why, why the triune Godhead? Why doesn't God just come down here and do this whole thing? Why doesn't God present himself to mankind as Father God and take care of things, address all the issues and so forth and so on? And why do we see all the variations of the way God works with man? Well, it, it basically uh, comes down to sin. And God the Father will not be in the presence of sin. So therefore, uh, for my study of the Bible, I see God the Father, the first person of the triune Godhead, only interacting with man at the beginning of Genesis and at the end of Revelation. And the distinction with those two components is at the beginning of Genesis and at the end of Revelation, there's no sin. So therefore, God, there's no sin with man. So therefore, God can interact directly with man, which is what he's always said he wanted to do. He always wanted to dwell among men, and of course he's God and he will bring it about, so there's no issue there. 
but it's just an interesting study throughout the scriptures through the 66 books to see how God interacts with sinful man and the fact that he interacted with sinless man at the beginning and he will do it again at the end. So we went to Genesis chapter 1 and we noticed that all through the creation week in Genesis chapter 1 and really through Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 we see Elohim which is uh, it, in Hebrew it means the strong one. It's the creator God, the triune Godhead, all three working together in creation. So we see God as Elohim there. In fact, you see Elohim um, I have down here 2,606 times it's used in the Old Testament, the term Elohim. But then it changes because you see a creation of the world and everything associated with creation in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, God is blessing it. Elohim, the triune Godhead, is blessing the work. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, there's a major shift and the shift is away from the creation of the physical world, if you will, and everything associated with it, to a relationship between God and man, created man. So now he's focusing on mankind. And I find it very interesting that the terminology now changes. So it's gone from God in the English, which is Elohim in the Hebrew, and in verse 4, it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And in our program yesterday, uh, I made a statement, uh, a descriptive statement here, and I said, Adonai Jehovah. And I used that several times, and I was thinking of one thing in my mind and not really looking uh, back at the Hebrew uh, words themselves, and uh, as any good um, wife would do, my wife Susan, who is also a longtime Bible study teacher, uh, pointed out to me that I was saying one thing and reading another, and I wanted to make sure we clarified that. It was nothing, nothing damaging, nothing wrong. It was just that I was focusing on something specific, and I should have been looking at the bigger term. Lord God is Yehovah Elohim, Yehovah Elohim. And I said, Adonai, Yehovah. Now the same, the God there, Elohim, is the same aspect. So now we're seeing a another aspect of God being brought into the picture. And he has a multitude of names. I forget exactly, 27, 28 names, maybe more, names throughout the Bible. But it's God is the Elohim, so we have the creator God aspect of this, but now it's getting even more personal when he adds Yehovah. And Yehovah is a combination that the Hebrews have made from two words, uh, Yahweh and Adonai. And that's where I was in my mind was thinking about that, that uh, it's Yahweh, Adonai, and you put the consonants and the syllables together in some strange way that the Hebrews do, and they come up with Yehovah. So now we're talking about the covenant-keeping God because now God is going to present himself to man and he's going to walk in the garden with man as Jehovah Elohim. So I wanted to make that point clear that um, Adonai is involved in there, but properly the, the words translated in the Hebrew are Jehovah Elohim. So he is going to be walking in the garden here 
and we're going to explore that in some detail uh, in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, the basics from Consider the Ant. Simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.